Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Tuesday, July 11th. What happens now for you or people you know after the Supreme Court struck down President Biden's student loan forgiveness program? What we did yesterday, if you didn't hear it, was just to take calls at the end of the show from anyone getting uh, getting ready for the end of the pandemic student loan moratorium to kind of testify about how the moratorium changed your life, what it allowed you to do, save for a home, pay your other bills more easily, stay more safe during the height of the pandemic, whatever. But one of the things that became clear was that many people aren't sure about the exact new requirements that begin in September or October, depending on how you measure it, which President Biden is trying to modify again, even with the Supreme Court ruling. So we're going to do an explainer segment now on that, and hopefully it will help people like our caller Jackie in Port Washington, who remained shocked many years after finishing college at what she didn't realize she had gotten herself into. I'm with a lot of people. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get it out. And I don't regret my education, but I regret that I did not understand the economics and and the interest policies of predatory lenders when I took out those loans. So for Jackie in Port Washington and everyone else with student loans yourself or people you care about getting ready to start paying again, we are very happy to have with us a journalist who both knows the details at the policy and political level and can offer some advice based on her reporting as well. It's Danielle Douglas-Gabriel, National Higher Education Reporter for The Washington Post, covering the economics of higher education. Among other things, she published a five-point checklist for what student loan borrowers can do now to ease the transition. We'll go point by point down the list. Danielle, we appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on and welcome back to WNYC. Thank you for having me back. Maybe you can reset the basics. Who has to start paying back what and exactly when? Sure, there are about more than 40 million people uh, with federal student loans who will have to restart their payments. Uh, Interest on those loans will start accruing in September and payments will come due in October. People have varying payment due dates, so not all on one date, some perhaps at the beginning of the month, others middle or the end. Uh, And, uh, you know, while certainly the vast majority of federal student loan borrowers benefited from this pause, there were others who did have to make payments during this time, folks with older loans. But now everybody will be thrown back into the system. Uh, What is, well, at least what the Department of Education is hoping is that by offering borrowers what they're calling a 12-month on-ramp system, Uh, they can kind of ease people back into the system. What that means is that during the 12 months starting, I believe, in October, if you miss any payments during that year, uh, it won't count on your credit score. You won't be deemed as delinquent. So it's giving folks some time to kind of ease their way back into having that bill added to their budget. Interesting. Um, Let me follow up on one distinction you made between payments being due in October and interest starting to accrue in September. We had a caller yesterday who said the news reports keep saying payments will be required again in October, but really it's better to pay down what you can by September or before September to avoid some new interest charges. So does that ring true to you? 
Certainly. I mean, if, if, you know, folks can afford to make payments ahead of that schedule, it would certainly help to lower their balance and save them money on interest. There, you know, are a lot of people I spoke with during this three-year three, three year pause who actually were making payments on their loans because there wasn't interest accruing. So they were just being able to pay down the principal quickly, which really knocked into some of what they owed on their debt. At this stage, you know, people really need to look at their family budgets and to see what is feasible for them. But paying attention to what you can actually afford to do before the pause ends and when it and when it does end would make a lot of sense for families right now. All right. You wrote up a five point checklist for what people with student loans can do to ease the transition. Let's go down the list. Tip number one, check the details of your account. What do you have in mind? So while there are a lot of people who are probably hyper aware of what they owe, what their interest rates are, all of those details, I suspect there are a lot of Americans who aren't paying a whole lot of attention to the intricacies of their loans. It would be good as uh, before the payments start, restart to get all of that information. Plus, there are has been a lot of movement of accounts from one loan servicer to another. The loan servicers are kind of the middlemen who collect and apply payments on behalf of the Department of Education. During that three-year pause, several of the big ones um, left the system and the, their accounts that they had went to other companies. It's good to know who your loan servicer is. It's good to know all the details of your loans. You can find all that information by logging into the Federal Student Aid website to just verify all of that detail, all those those uh, details. So Navient, for example, one big loan servicer, no longer in the business, also one called Pennsylvania Higher Education Assistance. So some people will have to set up logins and accounts with new loan servicers and even figure out who they are. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the loan services, to their credit, were pretty quick in trying to notify people when the accounts came into their possession. I don't know if everyone was paying attention to those emails during this time, but um, certainly the companies were trying to reach out. In some instances, the login information stays exactly the same, so there's no extra lift on that part. But information about whether you want automatic payments withdrawn from your account, all that kind of stuff you need to confirm with your student loan servicer before payments start over again. Uh, in fact, your tip number two is keep an eye out for notices. So these are the reminders via mail or email or robocall that your repayment requirements are starting up again. What if they don't contact you? Contact you? I mean, they will. They they definitely will because they, they definitely have to. But even if they don't contact you, you can be proactive and reach out to your servicer. Once you've gone on federal student aid and verified who the company is that's managing your loans, contact them. In fact, it's better to contact them before uh, the restart of payments because they have more capacity to take those calls. Now, if you wait until October or, or November, then, you know, you may be dealing with much longer uh, wait times for those calls because you and everybody else will be trying to get information at the same time. But what if they can't find you? What if you moved or your other contact information changed and they haven't contacted you? Is there risk in not resuming payments? Certainly. And I think this is why the Department of Education, the Biden administration is building in that 12 month period because of all of those factors that you just mentioned. If you moved, if your servicer can't find you, all of the things that would make it possible 
for you to fall behind on your payments if you're not getting that extra gentle nudge. And I think this is also particularly true for folks who graduated during that three-year pause, who have never made a payment on their loans and aren't familiar with the system, don't know much about the repayment plans, trying to reach out to them is critical. But while it would be great if your servicer is doing all the heavy lifting of getting you, you can also be proactive to make sure that you're selecting the best repayment plan for your financial situation. And that's your tip number three, figure out which <laughs> repayment plan is best for you. So people can change repayment plans as their financial situations change over the years? Certainly, yes. I mean, very many borrowers, when they're coming out of uh, college and they're not making much money, uh, there's a suite of repayment plans called income-driven repayment that tag your monthly payment based on your disposable income. So the less you make, the less you pay back. As your income increases, the more you pay back. So it would be a great idea for folks to like go on to the Department of Education's um, website. There's actually a loan simulator tool that lets you figure out how much you would pay on each of the various repayment plans hmm. and actually how whether or not you'd pay your debt off faster or not on each of those plans. So it's a really useful tool. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just saying it's, it's a really useful tool and I encourage people to check it out. And you suggest within that that the loan servicers can help with options like consolidation. What's consolidation in the context of student loans? So if you have multiple loans um, from various periods of uh, when you were throughout your education taking on more debt, you can consolidate it into one, one loan with one repayment. Also, if you have what are known as family, well, fell loans, these are the older bank-based loans I mentioned. Many mm -hmm. folks who had those loans, especially the ones that are held by commercial lenders, had to keep making payments during the pause. Now, if you want to uh, get into some of these more generous repayment plans that offer student loan forgiveness or just uh, kind of more flexible terms on repayment, you can consolidate those older loans into what's known as a direct loan, which are the newer loans. That would afford you all of the benefits of some of the newer repayment plans. Danielle, you report that the Federal Education Department has initiated what's called a negotiated rulemaking process to compromise, waive, or release loans under certain circumstances. That's the way the Education Secretary Miguel Cardona put it. What does that mean in plain English? Well, this the HEA, um, the Higher Education Act, pretty much governs many of the federal policies around higher education, including the secretary's ability to, to modify loans that are owed to the department. This has been applied through programs such as borrowed defense through payment for students who are defrauded by their colleges. This is what uh, governs public service loan forgiveness, that same authority. So the Biden administration is trying to use that authority, which uh, undergirds many other types of forgiveness programs to put forth a regulation that would allow him to achieve exactly what he was trying to go for through the executive order. Uh, this is not bulletproof at all. Um, I suspect there will be legal challenges on the scale of probably what we saw with the, uh, the, the program that was struck down by the Supreme Court. Uh, so while you know the president is saying he is not giving up the fight, it will not be an easy path forward. I saw in another news organization, Yahoo News, a reference to reducing discretionary income for income-based repayments. I'm not sure what that refers to. Are you familiar with that? 
Yes. So that is the program I'd mentioned a little earlier, that Ah. new income-driven repayment program that was finalized. Uh, That program takes effect next July, but uh, the program was finalized this July. And what it does is protect more of the income that goes into the calculation of how much you'll be paying a month. So whereas I think it's 150% above the poverty line, that's going to change to 225% above the poverty line. So that means a lot of people who are kind of starting out or whose income just isn't really um, making, helping them make ends meet may see their payments lowered. I think the White House is projecting that most borrowers who participate in this new plan could see their payments cut in half or save $1,000 or so on their loans. So really important to pay attention to. And one other thing I think is important to mention is that even if, even though the program doesn't take full effect till next year, there are aspects of it that will be implemented now, uh, including allowing people to make zero payments depending on their income using that new um, discretionary income threshold. So that's really important. And uh, so it's worth paying attention to this and looking at that program and talking to your servicers to see if that's the best fit for you. Hmm. Mike in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC. Hi, Mike. Hi, Brian. Um, In an effort to sort of zoom out a bit um, and not normalize um, the right-wing judiciary, like historically reactionary courts and isolate borrowers, because it can feel very isolating, and I appreciate your guest kind of giving advice Um, I just want to plug um, the Debt Collective, which came out of Occupy Wall Street. Um, DebtCollective.org also has a bunch of resources that people can go and check out. Um, There's, you know, power in collectivity and sharing resources and ideas and being together and potentially, you know, not defaulting, but going on debt strike um, using, you know, a couple of means. Like, it seems like politicizing this is important and not just kind of like going along and allowing, um, you know, the investors to be protected and instead um, saying, you know, there's $1.6 trillion of student loans out there. And, uh, you know, in addition to everything else that's going on in the world, that's something that we can't allow to just be on the backs of working people uh, to like find a way to scratch and claw and maybe get forgived here and, you know, just kind of like making it everybody, everybody for themselves. This is a, a collective social problem and it needs social and political answers. So, I appreciate you. Um, the, the context. Mike, do you know of any uh, collective debt strikes regarding student loan debts uh, that are actually underway since the Supreme Court ruling or even before? Can they be effective? And even though the concept is, you know, entirely admirable, can people, to your knowledge, do this without just winding up in trouble as isolated individuals financially? Well, they've been doing it for, I think it, I think it started, um, I don't know how long ago, but they, you know, they, they seem to be, if you go on debtcollective.org, you'll, you'll, you could read the history. I mean, they were, mm-hmm. they were uh, ahead of the Corinthian story. They've made these uh, digital suite of apps that like apparently the Department of Education has copied so they're, they're ahead of the curve in a lot of things. They're smart. They know what they're doing. And the idea is not to get people defaulting and ruining their credit, um, mm-hmm. but to sort of like do things smartly and jointly because there's power in a union, as the old saying goes. 
Um, if you get someone on between, you know, in the next couple months mm-hmm. uh, from the debt collective, I, I'm just some guy. I don't really know super detailed, right. but you're um, just that pointing was good. us thank toward you. it. Mike, thank you very much. Danielle, familiar with that? Yes, I am. Actually, uh, the Debt Collective uh, did help to push policy that changed a lot of this one program called Borrow Defense to Repayment. The Corinthian uh, school that the caller mentioned was a for-profit school that collapsed and left a lot of students carrying a lot of debt, oftentimes with degrees that were not valid in the market or viable in the marketplace. And so uh, a number of students went on strike, said they weren't going to pay their loans until the Department of Education was willing to forgive them given what they went through uh, as a result of, of their advocacy work. You saw a lot of policy changes uh, around that program, and they continued the effort with broader debt relief. They were very vocal and an active player in getting Biden to sign on to his debt relief program. Yeah, maybe kind of related to this. You quote an economist named Marshall Steinbaum, who has a kind of in-your-face suggestion for Biden, in the Supreme Court's face, that is. He says... They don't need a a rulemaking, a whole new process like you've been describing from the Department of Higher Education. Just cancel the debt. Tell all the borrowers their balances are reduced and let Chief Justice Roberts reimpose them. (laughs) That's a quote from Marshall Steinbaum, economist. But, Danielle, is that a serious suggestion if the Supreme Court already struck down the plan? I don't think the Biden administration would think it is. I mean, it it is a bold way of trying to achieve uh, that pro that policy. But given what we just saw with the courts, the kind of disappointment that borrowers face, I think the Biden administration was really trying to find a viable option that had a better chance of survive that has a good chance of surviving a court challenge. It's debatable whether the use of a uh, higher education act is that. But people like Marshall, as well as others, had said that using that authority gave uh, should give the Biden administration stronger footing on this issue. We'll see. On the politics, here's a caller who supports the Supreme Court decision, Mike in Brooklyn. Mike, you're on WNYC. Thanks for calling. How's it going? Thank you for having me on. What do you want to say? Uh huh. Well, we gotcha. I mean, yeah. So I, I support the decision of the, the, you know, the Supreme Court. I feel that a lot of these people knew what they were kind of getting into, and they chose to go to these schools that lead you to having this large amount of debt, rather than you know choosing this, the fiscal smart decision of, of going to a local county college or, or something. That that's what I did. And, and, you know, maintaining a, a reasonable amount of debt while getting an education. Um, I don't know why the taxpayer and the working class would take on all of the, the debt that these uh, a large amount of people went away. And, you know, mm-hmm. everybody knows what happens at college. You go away, you party, you have this great four-year experience, and all of a sudden you leave with $200,000 in debt in a English degree. I mean, maybe we should... <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you don't have Maybe to throw the, throw the English degree there into it. Uh, it's kind of piling on. But Mike, I get your point. Um, let's let's find yeah. out from our guest how she thinks President Biden would respond to that. And obviously, you're not you're a reporter, Danielle. I just want to make that really clear. You're not in the position of defending the student loan program. It's not your uh, forgiveness program. It's not your program. But as a reporter, what? How do you think 
President Biden would reply to Mike. I mean, I, I think it, this is an issue of nuance in and actual what the data shows us. So, yeah, there are people who have six figure debt, who went to expensive schools and all that, but they represent a pretty small portion of the people with student loans. Uh, I think it was important to note that if the president's program would have gone through, about 20 million people would have had their loans completely wiped away because they owed less than $20,000. And another kind of important point that the White House certainly uh, highlighted in, in many of their arguments in support of this program was that the people who are having the hardest time paying back their loans are people who often owe less than $10,000, are people who did not graduate from college, are people who went to uh, for-profit schools many times, and they didn't get the value of their degree because they didn't get the credential that would make them earn more in the in the labor market. So it's not always the, I guess, the, the per perception of the partying hard and four-year college, wasting your parents' money. While I don't doubt that some of that exists, the data doesn't quite um, bear that out. And I know we've had callers when we've taken student loan calls in the past, yesterday and on other shows, um, who did go to public colleges and universities, one of the things that Mike brought up, we had CUNY students, SUNY students, just in the New York context, uh, who still came out with many tens of thousands of dollars of debt, uh, largely because even though the tuition is relatively reasonable, they still had to pay to live. Yeah, that's often the case. In fact, many students I'm, I'm, I've spoken with in recent years they're not borrowing for tuition. Many of them are going to public institutions where the, and their in-state residents where the tuition is largely covered. It's room and board. It's getting to and from class. It is all of those other living expenses that they have to take care of, and they don't have the resources to afford it. We thank Danielle Douglas-Gabriel, national higher education reporter for The Washington Post, covering the economics of higher education. And this has been so helpful. You're great on the advice track. You're great on the, the policy and politics track. Uh, so we are so appreciative, Danielle. Thanks for being on with us. Always happy to be here. Thank you. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time. <music>